1: here, calling live from Bodega Bay, which is about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, right on the ocean. This happens to be the weekend that um, on my wife Adrienne's side, uh, her extended family, they get together every two years for a family reunion. And uh, we came up, we drove up here, it's about a five-hour drive from our place in Central California, and north to bodega bay and thursday night and now it's sunday morning already after a wild and woolly weekend and uh, many every reunion they have some kind of a theme uh, that that reflects significant life events going on among the participants and um you see, Adrian and her late parents, um, late parents had three daughters, and Adrian was the youngest one, and uh, all of us have grown children now, you know, <laughs> some of them in their fifties, and they've married, and their children have already married, and um And uh, so us old people, because Adrian and her two sisters have two husbands, so they're they're three couples, okay? And we all have been married 50 years already, you know, and um, it's really something to see these sisters get together and you see the old relationships of uh, when they're growing up, their personalities come out. The oldest is the queen bee. Amy, and then a couple of years later, Naomi came, and then four years later, Adrian came. Well, of course, probably she was supposed to be a boy, but they stopped at three. And in fact, in the, in the extended clan, there are about three, four uh, uh, couples that have three girls. Wow. I don't know what that means, but so um one of the themes was uh, <clears throat> uh, birthday, for, and uh, the, the system they have is that whoever turned or is turning a certain age this year that ends in zero. So 10 year olds, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, we, we have cupcakes and we toast them and then. Um, one couple got engaged and <clears throat> so we celebrated their engagement, okay, with games and prizes and things like this. And of course Bodega Bay is right on the ocean and so uh, one afternoon is spent going uh through the ocean, kite flying and things like this. And as I mentioned all this and I pause to think about um Interconnections, roots, family, you know. And so all the families are just about, are blended. This is America. Wow, you just got to pause and think about this. Um, multiracial, multi ethnic, multi religious, it's all here, you know, and I think. We're not the exception. Many families are like this. Wow, that's really something, you know? And when I think about roots and the extensiveness of our interconnections okay, among our extended families, it shows, is just a reflection of, of nature, conditions, causes and conditions, and um, how intricate this is. And when I think of roots, I think about plant roots. And I think about an interesting story that uh, is in a collection of uh, uh, Buddhist teachings about life. And interdependency, of course, is a core teaching. Uh, Nothing esoteric about it. But Interdependency, the oneness of life, um, can be seen, uh, <clears throat> let's say, in the, a plant's roots. Um, for example, the, the story I mentioned is of a rye plant, R-Y-E, simple rye plant done uh, in the botany department of University of Michigan. What they did, now this is a story I, I heard they planted one rye seed in a wooden planter box with nice fertile soil. They watered it, they got a nice sunny spot in the lab, and this rye came out and it grew into a mature stalk. Then they extracted it from the box. They shook off all the uh, earth soil from the roots and they wanted to examine how extensive the root system was for this single rye plant. They measured the the main root, how long it was. Okay, Then the major arteries that come off, they measured those lengths and a cum, cumulative count of how many inches the, the root system was. Okay. And it's so intricate and you start, and then in fact, they could extrapolate the microscopic hairs on the tiniest root you could find is filled with tiny microscopic roots that are still growing. And do you know what the, the conclusion of the story is? They added up all the length of all of these roots. Okay. And you know how long it was? Over 25,000 miles. Wow. I don't know if this is really true or not, but it's such an unbelievable number um, that shows how intricate the root system is. So can you imagine if... If that's such a staggering number for a single, root, single rye stalk, how extensive must be for complex human beings uh, all their their social networks, family roots, and you know what's called roots, right? That's a that's a that's a strong word. Not only after Alex Haley wrote about. Roots for the African-Americans who are trying to, you know, reclaim their, their heritage, their culture, their, you know, background and everything. And all people are like this. We had a session the other night here in Bodega Bay about culture, cultural differences in our whole blended family. Okay. So-and-so is married to a Mexican-American. So-and-so is married to... Uh, Estonian, you know where Estonia is, <laughs> you know, and what their culture's about. think so. Um, Jewish family and Vietnamese, Chinese family, all kind of blended families and beautiful children. Wow, they're going to be the salvation of society. I tell you that. The reason I say that is because when you look at them, it's hard to put a label on them. And that's good. Okay, he yeah, said, "Oh, on my mother's side I'm this, uh, on my father's side I'm this," and you know it gets too complicated socially. You're just a human being. Okay, take them on their merits. On, and you know, why do we need to categorize, label, and put them in boxes? Oh, you, I'm Japanese American, or I, you know, not that simple. It's complex. Okay. Interdependency rules <laughs> well I'm going to introduce Lacey who's going to give us a dharma glimpse she's a current uh, lay minister st- student in our uh, program lay program and uh, she has consented to give a dharma glimpse this morning
0: hello my name is Lacey and I am a part of the lay minister group um, part B, or group B, uh, for the 11 group, and I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would talk about for this glimpse. I had something in mind, but I kept doubting myself, and thinking every thought I could think about it, about how it could go wrong and all this other stuff to the point of making myself physically sick over it. And I just had to finally come to realize that if I believe what I'm saying, then I just I have to do it anyway. So today I would like to talk about something that has come to be very important to me. Um, and part of that is social action. In my practice, it has become more and more apparent to me that Buddhist teachings are meaningless without action. Without putting any action behind the teachings, you have only words. To me, this means education and right view. Without education, you can't practice having a wide view or have an accurate understanding of the problem to have a right view. When we understand interdependence and cause and effect, we know that every action, no matter how small, has an effect. No action is also still an action. Our lives are so interdependent and interwoven that no action or thought is truly all, of, all our own. Our decisions are guided by others. Our education is guided by others, by what others take initiative to teach us, what others put out there for us to learn from. And we can do that for others ourselves. Seeing how interdependent we actually are it becomes impossible to not take action whether it's helping out with money and donating to causes babysitting for your friend who is a single mom or making that phone call when you understand interdependence the Buddha's goal was to end suffering the first precept we learn on walking the, the Buddhist path is do not harm most people when they hear this they think of Vegetarianism, veganism, and anti war and anti violence campaigns. But there is a more sinister harm that's happening in the world and it affects every one of us in some way, and that is domestic violence. Taken from domesticviolencestatistics.org, here are some facts domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women more than car accidents muggings and rapes combined In every nine seconds in the U.S. a woman is assaulted or beaten here's here are some more facts one in three women and one in four men will experience some form of dom- domestic violence or stalking in their lifetime guys that's your mother your sister or your wife or your daughter ladies that's one of your two best friends, or your mother and your daughter and you. Domestic violence comes in many forms, and it's not always easily seen from the outside. It can include any kind of behavior that's intimidating. And it can include coercive manipulation, minimizing, blaming, financial control, isolation, emotional and verbal abuse threatening to keep your kids from you, as well as the obvious physical and sexual abuse. Domestic violence is sinister in the fact that it can be easily kept hidden from the public eye, and the laws and education on the subject are so lax that often women stay in abusive relationships because they simply do not realize that that's what it is. But never judge a woman for staying. The women who do know what it is and choose to stay often have good reason. And that is because that is the most dangerous time for them. More than 75% of domestic violence murder victims occur after the relationship has already ended. This glimpse is my gift of education to you and to hopefully inspire you to take action, practice right view and the practice right effort. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, You know, very topical in current events, and of course we think about the Me Too movement. I salute that movement. It's about time. dynamic, very alive, very, um, you know, consciousness raising, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's a, and, um, the broader perspective or, 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 background about this in terms of social action and so forth is that, um, I was looking at my father's study some years ago and I came across some old files and one of them was, a. Uh, conference program in the early 50s my father was a speaker as one of the ministers and several others were and they and they had submitted uh uh written transcript of their talks and this was reprinted in this in the program and my father talked about the buddhist approach to life to the teachings um, in the broadest sense. And it was so fundamental and so clearly defined that it really impacted me. The simplicity in which he said, uh, you know, they're, for human beings, okay, they're given life, they grow up, everything. What, kind of life teachings or or approach or orientation do human beings have in terms of how to live a good life. And when it comes to religion, and of course religion is one of the things that people have come up with to to promote that goal, there's three of them. So, my father says, Well, the first one is where you believe in a personal God where that controls everything, that created everything, and you know, it's all powerful. And so, people that are in that religious camp, how do they navigate through life? Well, mainly it's prayer, uh-huh. um, having a particular kind of relationship with this personal God. And so when things get difficult in life, ask for, if you say God, use the term God, guides, uh, God's c- compassion, mercy, uh, you know, shine down on me and and uh, help me out, okay? Now, I don't mean to... Raise Buddhism up and denigrate other religious approaches. But I'm just looking, reading this article, and I'm sure theologians, as the topic itself is, can be very wide, from, viewed from many angles, through many different kinds of glasses and so forth. Okay, uh, some in, in a direct in sort of a negative way, they said, "Well, this kind of a religious approach can be called a beggar's religion." The person, human being themselves, don't have ultimate power over what happens to them and how, how they live their life. They don't have power. Okay? And a lot of times in crises and things happen to us, we don't have any control over a lot of things that happen to us or the situation we find ourselves in. Okay? So they ask for favor. Favor. And it's not so simple, cut and dry, because let's say the Christian theologian might say, well, you don't have to necessarily ask God for a petitionary prayer in a simple sense. You might say, Well, oh, God, give me strength so that I could cope wisely with this situation. Not necessarily so simply uh, <clears throat> causing effect. Okay. okay, that's one. Now, the second approach is that things are chaotic and happen by chance. We can't, and we could relate to this where, gee, things are so complicated in life. We, what, what happened? <laughs> you know, how did this happen? Why me? All this? Huh? How come I was, uh, I didn't choose to be born and I didn't choose to be born in these kind of circumstances. How come I got this uh, health problem here? How come I, I got into this accident? How come this, you know? I'm with these coworkers, whatever it is. You can't understand. It's too complex. And so rather than struggle with it mentally, trying to figure it out, they adopt this second approach of life's a, uh, well, crapsuit. Uh, things are happening and it's sort of chaotic and random and we can't understand anything and depend upon anything. Now, how would a human being live life with that kind of an underlying assumption? Okay. They're not religious in a traditional sense. Well, you do the best you can, but, uh, <clears throat> uh, well, like I said, if the first approach was called a beggar's religion, the second one would be called maybe a gambler's religion. Like when gamblers play a game and, To them, there's you know, even though there may be some skillful aspects to particular gambling uh, things, games, but well, good luck, and uh, uh, they they can't control it, and there's no God. They don't believe in a God to say, "Come on, (laughs) you know, may do it for me." So they just speak out their wishes and fears and things and say. Oh, man, well, I I hope that the good fortune is on my side today. Come on, seven. So you might call it a gambler's religion. Then my father said, contrary to these two approaches, the Buddhist approach is uh, <coughs> karma. Karma is a tremendous topic. And fittingly, when Lacey said, giving us a Dharma glimpse this morning, put an emphasis on action, that is exactly what karma means, literally. It means action and what happens and what happens. So it's about causes and conditions, indirect causes, direct causes, you know. More of a process, more of a a verb than some kind of a noun. In terms, it's something dynamic, and its things are changing. Okay? Nothing's carved in stone. There's no fatalism. There's no. <clears throat> and this kind of um, karmic assumption approach to life, Buddhist life is is very well action oriented. Well, what am, what am I going to do? I can't ask God for a thing, you know, and I can't just say, throw up my hands and say, well, I can't do anything about it. We don't know good or bad fortune. So it's very realistic. And in, in a sense, it's uh, empowering. Well, because my actions have this kind of effect. Okay, you know. There's no guarantee, though, because you don't know the complete Behavioral law that governs societies, families, neighborhoods, nations. There's a lot of karmic things going on. It's not just an individual action. But the ground, the foundation is karmic. Beyond morality and ethics. It's just things as they are. And the sooner we realize that and not that the things are as I want them to be and that's what life is all about. No. it's seeing clearly understanding the right way of viewing the world and our place in it. This was the genius of the Buddha's realization. And he was able to put it into action not just talk about it, but when confronted with real life, live people, live situations, he could offer a direct way of how to look at life. If you read a biography of Buddha's life, that's fantastic about how he he must have been a master psychologist. He was probably an erudite philosopher if he wanted to go in these directions. Okay, but he directed people the right, very practical, eightfold noble path. How to understand? How to, you know, you should talk right. You should have good livelihood. You should have good mindfulness. Okay, all of these real life things, action wow, hey, okay. so in a sense, stripping away everything, whether it's uh, beggars or gamblers or intellectuals or philosophies, uh, it just comes down to, you know, living life, huh? things as they are. Huh? Uh, and people could relate to this kind of uh not answer, I would say, but uh, you know, when when sometimes people want to categorize. Say, well, is Buddhism a religion, or it sounds like a way of life? Is it a philosophy? Is it a psychology? Okay. And I remember one answer when someone asked all these questions. The person said, "Yes." Well, <laughs> on this note, <laughs> that's all for today's program. Till next time, keep going. Keep going, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.